Go ahead and take your Bibles and open them up to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along, we have provided Bibles right in front of you, and we would uh, love for you to take those up and turn to that passage so you can follow us along as we study together. Matthew 1, verses 18. We'll actually read through 25. If you need help finding that passage in those Bibles in front of you, it's on page 757. Uh, before we do read, though, I, I do want to share just a couple of quick announcements of things coming up so everybody's on the same page. Uh, first off is uh, Christmas Eve services. We want to, I want to personally invite you to join us on Christmas Eve at one of our two services. The times are 3 p.m. and 5 p.m. Uh, there will be child care provided for uh, children under the age of two at the 3 p.m. service only. Uh, we would love for you to be able to join us and celebrate Christmas once again as a body uh, together. And we would encourage you to not keep that invite to yourself, but rather invite your friends and family. And this is the time of year where uh, people who are opposed to God and opposed to church and opposed to Jesus are more likely to come to church at an invite. And so we would love for you to take that insert that we gave you in the bulletin and to pass it along to a friend or a family member to join us at one of those two services. We are really looking forward to it. Um, also, uh, it's typically our pattern here at FAC to drop down to one service between uh, Christmas and uh, New Year's. And so uh, December 29th, we will only have our 1045 service. Uh, it's just a heads up. Um, this is unique in that it brings the, the entire body of FAC under one roof for one worship service. Uh, and it is something that we do occasionally, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. And so December 29th, we'll be dropping down to just the 1045 service. So if this is the service you normally come to, you don't have to worry about remembering anything. But if you do come to the nine o'clock service, just make a note of that. Uh, let's read verses 18 through 25 together. You can follow along as I'll read and then I'll pray and we'll begin. God's word says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary uh, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, in the busyness and in the craziness of life during this holiday season, Father, would we devote just the next several minutes to knowing you through the preaching of your word. Father, I understand that I'm only a man and these are human words from me, but would you take these words, would you redeem them, would you translate them, and would you engage our minds and transform our hearts? Lord, I ask that your word... Um, would be known and revealed to us. Would you help us by the power of your spirit? And in your holy name I pray, amen. 
If you're familiar with Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet, you'll recall one of the more famous lines when Juliet muses, what's in a name? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. But if you've ever had the privilege of naming someone, you'll realize that uh, there is a considerable amount of significance and pressure in naming the child. This is a really big deal. And uh, believe it or not, as I was preparing for this Sunday, I stumbled across an article from the Wall Street Journal that is all about the stress of naming children. (laughs) The news must have been slow that day, but I want to listen... I want you to listen just to the first paragraph from this article. This is amazing. Sociologists and name researchers, I didn't even know there was such a thing as name researchers, say that they are seeing unprecedented levels of angst among parents trying to choose names for their children. As family names and old religious standbys continue to lose favor, parents are spending more time and money on the issue and are increasingly turning to strangers for help. The article goes on to tell a story about a woman from California who spent $475 to have a numerologist test her favorite name for her daughter just to see if it had positive associations. Later on, talks about this couple from North Carolina that hired a pair of baby name consultants Yeah, and who, quote, consider phonetic elements, popularity, and ethnic and linguistic origins. They consider all of those factors, and then they take those considerations, and for a small price, offer up a list of suggestions. If you're going to pay money for a list of suggestions, please come to me, and I will will give you a list of suggestions. In Bible times, I don't think they went through that kind of hassle. However, it's important to understand that names were extremely significant in ancient times. More significant than even now. Today, we treat names as just a badge of identification. But in the Bible times, they would often tell others who you were and what purpose God had for your life. For instance, the name Eve actually means living things because she was the mother of all living things. The name Abraham was a name given by God to Abram. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, and it means the father of many. God, or Jesus, told Peter that he was the rock. The name Peter means rock, and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. And then we come to this passage of scripture where we find out about Jesus' name. And how his name was given, and it's important not to gloss over it, because it's going to put some flesh, literally, on who this infant Jesus is, and what he's here to do, and what this whole hoopla about Christmas actually is. Last week, we looked at the fact that Matthew claimed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, and then we studied his family tree. And I look at last week as taking just a real general look at how God's plan of redemption unfolded. This week, we see that Matthew actually takes a microscope 
and dials in quite a bit and we'll, we'll actually take a real specific look at how God's plan of redemption unfolds, all the details that go into that. And so let's look at the story together. In verse 18, we learn that there was a man and a woman, Mary and Joseph, who were betrothed to be married. We have to understand that the culture was much different back then. And if we hope to understand the characters of the story and their motivation, we have to understand what betrothal meant in their context. In our culture, men and women within a marriage are pretty much the sole decision makers when it comes to who they marry, who their spouse is going to be. And it's typically motivated or at least initiated by romantic feelings of sorts, right? We, we date people because we're romantically attracted to them. And then as we date them, we determine if they are a suitable spouse for the rest of time, right? And we get to decide who we, who we marry and who we do not. This was not the case for Mary and Joseph. Marriage in those times was much more transactional, and the parents of the bride and the groom were actually the final decision makers of who their spouse was to be. What would typically happen is the parents of a young man, probably about 18 to 20 years old, would seek out a woman to be their son's bride, and the woman was just old enough to bear children. So we're talking 12 to 14 years old is, is probably the age of Mary. And the parents decided and picked who your spouse was going to be. Teenagers, could you imagine what it would be like if your parents picked your spouse for you? Once the bride was chosen, there would be an official arrangement and agreements before witnesses. And this would bind the two families together. The bride and the groom would enter into this state of betrothal, which was a legally binding contract and could only be broken in a formal process of divorce. They weren't married yet, but this was such a binding agreement that they would refer to each other as husband and wife. And after this meeting occurred and after the couple officially entered in betrothal, the groom would typically return home with his parents and even though they were legally bound together, they weren't physically bound to each other yet. And there was this separation until their wedding day. This was the stage that Mary and Joseph were in. And this stage would last about a year. And during this time, the groom would return with his uh, parents to his father's house. And he would prepare a special spot for him and his bride to start a family at his father's house. And then when everything was ready, the groom would return to his bride in a processional and they would have a fantastic, elegant, extravagant wedding. They celebrated, believe it or not, much more extravagantly than we even do. They would take weeks to celebrate a marriage union. And then once they were married, they would return to the groom's father's house. For Mary and Joseph, they're in the stage of betrothal. They're anticipating the wedding ceremony when Joseph comes to find out that Mary is pregnant. This is a little awkward. You see, from Joseph's perspective at this point, he knows that he's not responsible for that baby, for Mary's pregnancy. So clearly Mary has been with another man. And in this betrothal stage, because there was, an illegal, uh, there was a legal agreement, the unfaithfulness of a spouse would actually be counted as adultery. 
From Joseph's perspective, he thought that Mary had committed adultery. In verse 19, we read that Joseph was a just man, though. He was righteous. And this often gets confused because it's not actually in reference to how he treats Mary with compassion, but it's actually in reference to Joseph's relationship with the law at the time, the, 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 the Jewish law. To be just or righteous in this situation would mean that you follow the law like a good Jewish man. Joseph followed the law. And according to Jewish law, not just Jewish law, but Roman and Greek law, if somebody committed adultery, you had to divorce them. Even if Joseph wanted to give Mary a second chance, he couldn't if he intended to keep the law like a righteous man. So in this instance, he desired, he desired to follow the law uh, more and he decided to divorce her. The decision now becomes, how will I go about divorcing her? You see, Joseph had two options. First, he could have done it publicly. He could have made a big deal about it. Or he could have done it, done it privately, which would require only a few witnesses. He, he easily could have publicly shamed Mary. And although this is definitely an arranged marriage, there would have been a deep feeling of betrayal uh, on the part of, of Joseph. Joseph would have been emotionally wounded in this situation. As Mary, if she did commit adultery, it would have brought shame not just on her own family, but on Joseph's family as well. Because think about this. If I'm Joseph and my parents picked Mary to be my wife and she's unfaithful, then my parents chose a poor spouse. This brings much shame on Joseph's family. And so there is some value in Joseph divorcing her publicly because if there's enough public outcry against Mary, if it's loud enough, if it's harsh enough, perhaps Joseph and his family can save face. They even have an option of taking her to court, believe it or not, to recoup what was called the bride price. At the time of the betrothal, the groom's parents would actually pay the bride's parents what was known as a bride's price. And because she was unfaithful, Joseph economically could have recouped that bride price in a court of law if he made it public. However, we read that Joseph doesn't act out of vengeance. He doesn't respond in a harsh way in order to recoup the bride price, but rather out of compassion for Mary, we read that he seeks to divorce her privately. We see a little bit of Joseph's character come through as he desires to follow the law, yet still does it in a way where he cares for Mary in this situation. We, we read, though, that as he's working through this scenario in his mind, he goes to bed one night, and when he wakes up, we come to find that Joseph has had a change of heart. He's changed his mind. He decides to take Mary at his wife, all because of a night's sleep. Perhaps you've been in situations where life is stressful and you're dealing with a project at work or you're dealing with a, with a relative issue or just there is something really eating away at you as you consider certain options and certain things. And if you're anything like me, sometimes the best remedy is just to go to sleep. 
<laughs> right? You just say, I, I just got to get a good night's sleep and then all my problems will be fixed in the morning. At least that's what we tell ourselves, right? If I, if I just get a good night's sleep, then I'll have a fresh look at it tomorrow. But this was extremely significant. This was not like one of those situations. This is a dramatic shift in Joseph's stance. He was ready to divorce Mary, and now he is taking her as his wife without any reluctance, all because of a night's sleep. Think about the ramifications that this would bring. This would be quite a dilemma for Joseph because the public, people, they are either going to think that he is disobeying the law by not divorcing Mary for committing adultery, therefore he is no longer a just and an upright man, or people are just going to assume that Joseph is taking responsibility for the child and that he's been impure before marriage, which would have also brought shame on him and his family. This seems to be a lose-lose situation for Joseph. And so knowing Joseph's character, knowing that he's a righteous man, that he's a just man, knowing that he is a good, upright, standing Jewish man, something had to change his mind. What changed, Joseph? Joseph, what life-altering event happened? that you would change your mind about taking Mary as your wife. It would have had to have been something extremely significant to put your name and your reputation on the line like that. Well, as the reader, we're not left in the dark. We know what happened. We read about such a dramatic event in verses 20 to 23. We read that in his sleep, an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream, and he explains to him that he doesn't need to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Joseph, you don't have to be scared of the stigma that this is going to bring. You don't have to be scared of the shame that's going to come on your family and your name because this is no ordinary baby. This baby is worth you risking your own name and your reputation. The, The angel explains that this baby is different. This baby is significant. This baby is special. And the angel says, let me tell you why? Let me tell you about this baby. And this is where we see a shift in the passage from it describing who Joseph is to describing who Jesus is. And as a side note, let me remind you that it's important to remember that the book of Matthew and the book of the Bible, for that matter, is first and foremost a story about Jesus. One commentator that I read shares this. I love this. He he writes, other characters will move on and off the stage and will receive focused attention for specific purposes. But the question we must continually ask through every section of the Bible is what is this passage telling us about Jesus? You see, if we're not careful, there is a danger of moralizing biblical characters. What do you mean? This is what I mean by moralizing biblical characters. We take these biblical characters that we read about and we pull out conclusions about what morality is, how it's defined by these characters, and then we try and copy and paste those morals onto us and then we slap it with the label that this is what it means to be a Christian. But when we do this, we make the Bible merely a book of virtues. We use this book 
to only teach our children and ourselves for that matter that we should be good people, that we should be honest, that we should be caring, that we should be courageous. And while those are good things, things that we should desire, we also have to come to grips with the fact that you can learn those things from any form of media this day, today. You can turn on Saturday morning cartoons and learn about morals and virtues. This is why as Christians, we need to focus on the one thing that makes us different. And that is Jesus Christ. Yes, the Bible is full of morals and the Bible is full of virtues, but it doesn't stop there. Our understanding of the Bible merely as a book of morality cannot overtake our understanding that this book is God-breathed, God-inspired, and given to us mainly so that we may know him. So that we may know him specifically through the life of Jesus Christ, who is the only real biblical hero. You go back and look at those stories that you learned in Sunday school, these stories of so-called biblical heroes, and you will come to find that these were pretty horrible and nasty people. Apart from Christ, there are no real biblical heroes because they're all tainted with sin. And so it would be easy for us to come to a passage today like this and moralize Joseph put them on a pedestal. A lot of pastors do it, right? We could find ways to moralize Joseph and create a three-point outline about who Joseph is and how we should emulate him. But the story isn't about Joseph. It's about Jesus. And the angel makes this very clear. Joseph, this situation isn't about you and your reputation, and your name, and your life. This is about Jesus. Let me tell you who he is, and let me tell you why he has come. This is verse 20 and 23. This is the meat of the passage, and boy, is it deep. Last week, I shared that um, giving a sermon is like uh, serving a meal, right? And if that's the case, Verses 20 to 23 is like prime steak. Unless you're a vegetarian, then I don't know what's wrong with you. (laughs) We can still be friends though. This is meaty as the angel tells us these two things of who Jesus is and and, and what what he has, has come to do. In verse 20, the angel tells Joseph that this human baby that is in Mary's womb was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The angel is like reassuring Joseph. He's saying, you don't have to fear about Mary committing adultery because she didn't. That baby was placed there by God, specifically the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit placed that human baby in Mary's womb. And then Matthew goes on to comment a little bit further in verses 20 to 23. And he says that this was to fulfill a specific prophecy from Isaiah 7, 14, a prophecy that was written centuries before this event ever even occurred, where Isaiah writes, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That name Emmanuel, once again, is more like a role or a title. It's a, 
describer. You wouldn't necessarily see Jesus on the street and call him Emmanuel, but this is his role, Emmanuel, God with us. And in connecting this prophecy with this story, Matthew ascertains that this baby is not only from God, but is God, God with us. So this is the claim that Matthew makes in these few verses that Jesus being born of Mary is fully human, fully man, yet by being conceived by the Holy Spirit is also fully God. Yes, he is the son of David and the son of Abraham like we looked and discovered last week, but he is also the son of God. This is a critical tenet in our faith that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God simultaneously. See, Jesus took on human nature. He took on flesh, but remained fully God at the same time. This is an interesting point in human history because Jesus has always existed as God, but at this point in human history, he steps into the world, into his creation, God with us, and becomes fully human. Now, it's important to not get confused about this and to know what this isn't. It's not as if in a moment of time or history, Jesus gave up being God. He didn't decide to change his nature by becoming human and leaving his divinity behind, right? Even in his presence here on earth, he was still fully God. He never ceased being God. He never gave up being God. He may have given up the rights and the glory that go along with being God. Philippians 2 is a real good description of this. It says that Jesus emptied himself, right? He emptied himself, but he never gave up actually being God. That's one common misconception. Another one is that he didn't mix his natures. It's not as if Jesus is two separate persons that have somehow been combined or mixed, Right, We made Christmas cookies yesterday, and as you mix the eggs in with the vanilla extract and the flour, it becomes kind of this big mush of goodness, right? But that's not what happened, because the qualities that went along with the eggs and the flour ceased to exist. But for Jesus, he isn't mixed. It's not a mixed nature. He's not half God and half man. No, he's 100% God and 100% man. There's no real good illustration to describe this. It's such a foreign concept to our finite minds. The most adequate way of describing this is to say, is to say that Jesus is one person with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature that are not mixed but inseparably united from now until eternity and even into eternity. And if anybody wants to combat you on this, it's worth defending because our entire faith falls flat without it. This actually reminds me of one of my favorite Christmas stories about St. Nicholas. Not Santa Claus, uh, the real St. Nick that inspired our idea of Santa Claus. There's a legend, it's um, debated as whether it's not whether it's a real story or not. Um, I choose to believe that it's real because it's awesome. This, 
the, the legend goes that St. Nicholas was in attendance at the Council of Nicaea in 325 when a heretic by the name of Arius stood up and tried to teach that Jesus was actually not God, but created by God. Well, good old St. Nick wasn't having any of that. So he got up, walked over to Arius and punched him in the face. So try and tell me that Jesus isn't God and you'll see what happens. The angel tells us this is who Jesus is and we'll come to find that this is critical to Jesus's mission. The fact that he is 100% God and 100% man is essential in fulfilling what he came here to do. What is his mission? Verse 21 is very clear. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Let me be perfectly clear. The main reason that Jesus came. The main mission that he was on was to save people from their sins. Many contemporaries will muddy what Jesus came here to do. They ask questions like, was he just a good man? Was he here merely to be a good teacher and to instruct us between what's right and what's wrong? Was he here only to just heal the sick or to take care of the poor? While all of those things are true, while he did all of those things, Matthew explicitly states that his mission was to save sinners. That's why he was given the name Jesus. This was his mission. The name Jesus is a beautiful name that actually comes from the Old Testament name Yeshua, or as we would pronounce it in English, Joshua. The name Joshua actually means God is salvation. And Jesus is the Greek form of the name Joshua, but there actually is a slight difference in translation because the name Jesus actually means he is salvation. It's pointing to Jesus as being the source of our salvation and basically equating him with God. And so even in his name, we see his mission seep through that he was here to bring salvation, that he is salvation and to bring us to salvation from our sin. Even in his beautiful, powerful, wonderful name, we see that Jesus was so much more. Kevin DeYoung, who's a pastor, um, writes this. I love this. He says, more than a great teacher, more than an enlightened man, more than a worker of miracles, more than giving us meaning in life, more than a self-help guru, more than a self-esteem builder, more than a political liberator, more than a caring friend, more than a transformer of cultures, more than a purpose for the purposeless. Jesus is a savior of sinners. And I'm afraid that it isn't only the contemporaries that mix this up because many within Israel were confused. You see, they were looking for a savior savior to free them from political oppression. They were looking for someone to deliver them specifically in that moment from Rome. They wanted a warrior king. They wanted a conqueror to come in and destroy their enemy. 
And Matthew is saying, no, he didn't come to save you from your political bondage. He came to save you from your spiritual bondage. He didn't come to save you from your political foe. He came to save you from yourself and your very own sin. He came to save you from a greater enemy than your political adversaries. The greater enemy being your sin. We have to understand that our greatest enemy is our own sin. Our greatest enemy is our own sin. And in order to recognize the significance of this, we need to understand sin from a biblical perspective. I fear that if you were to ask a large amount of people in a room the question, what is sin? The majority of them would probably say that sin is something you do. That sin is an action. But if this was the case, and if sin was only something that we do, then the solution to our sin would, to, would be merely to, to stop. Right? Just stop sinning. You know that bad thing that you do that keeps on getting you in a rut and that thing that keeps just messing with your life, that, that sin that you're doing? Just stop it. Just stop and all of your problems will be fixed. It's that easy, right? The issue with this though is that our biblical understanding of sin tells us that sin is actually not something you do, but rather it's something you are. You are sin. Our sin is not merely things we do with our behavior, but it's the very condition of our hearts. And our actions are simply just a manifestation of that condition. Our our actions are, are just an outward expression of who we are internally, sin. Our actions are just a symptom of a disease that is woven into the very fabric of our life. This is why behavior modification, the idea of just stop it, isn't the answer. Because sin is a stain on your heart that you are powerless to remove. And so the answer isn't merely just to clean up my life. No, you need a new heart altogether. Your heart has failed you. It is stained with the the stain of sin, the stain of death, and it will lead to death. And so you need a heart transplant. You need spiritual surgery. You need somebody to come and take out that old heart and to put in a new heart because Christianity isn't about putting on a new set of behaviors like a change of clothes. It's not a self-help book. It's not necessarily a 12-step program. Christianity is a transformation from death to life. Christianity is a heart transplant because sin is in your very DNA and it's actually being passed down from generation to generation. It's unavoidable. Romans 5.12 speaks to this. Paul explains that sin came into the world through one man and because of this, all men are sinners. The human race is tainted. The human race is broken. The human race is cursed. And just as you would receive an inheritance from generation to generation, we inherit sinfulness and the curse that goes along with it. And what's worse is that sin is punishable by death. Paul writes about that in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death. 
And so this is a lot of bad news for this morning, is it not? I mean, you look at this and you say, what is our hope in life and death? If this sin, which I can't avoid, nor I can get rid of, is pointing me to an inescapable destination of death. You're telling me that I can't avoid it, I can't get rid of it, and it's going to lead to death? What am I supposed to do? What is my hope? That is the good news of the Bible. That is the good news of the angel, the, the message that he brings to Joseph. Behold, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And it's only this God-man Jesus who can save us from our sins. He is the only way, and he can only save us because he is the God-man. Both natures are essential in fulfilling this mission. The truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man is critical in understanding how he can save us from this sin that is inescapable and unavoidable. Why did Jesus have to be fully human? Because a human sacrifice could pay the permanent price. Only a human sacrifice could pay the permanent price for sins. If you were to look back in the Old Testament, you will come to find that God has always said that if you are a sinner, it requires death. It requires an offering of poured out blood. Since the fall of man, the only way to be made right with God is through an offering, the blood of an innocent sacrifice. This is the driving motivation behind the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. In order for Israel to be made right with God, to reconcile themselves to God, they would need to sacrifice animals to God. He required blood. But we come to find that these sacrifices weren't sufficient because they were only temporary in nature. Yes, they would make you right with God, but the Israelites had a problem. They were sinners and they continued to sin. And so they needed to go make another sacrifice. And then they would sin again. And they would have to go make another sacrifice. And it was a vicious cycle. They were temporary in nature. And Hebrews 10.4 is important in this regard. It says that for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so what do we need in order to take away our sins? A human sacrifice. A sacrifice that is like us. This is why Jesus needed to be fully human. This is why when he went to the cross, he shed his own blood to cover our sins once and for all. He was the final and perfect sacrifice that fully satisfies God's wrath against sin forever. If he were not fully human, the sacrifice wouldn't have satisfied God's wrath. He needed to be 100% human. So why did he need to be fully God? Why did he need to be 100% God if he wasn't fully God? If he wasn't conceived by the Holy Spirit, he would have inherited original sin. Sin would have been in his DNA just like you and me. 
While you and I have inherited sin from generation to generation, Jesus is the first human to break the chain because he doesn't have a human father. Instead, he possesses a sinless, divine nature from his heavenly father. If he had a sin nature, he couldn't pay such a debt. Why? Because he had his own debt to pay. No, the reason he could take on the sin of the world at the cross was because he had no sin to pay for himself. If he had sin, then his death and his resurrection are powerless to save anybody else. Jesus, the God-man, who came to be like us so that we could be like him. And so in light of all of this, what do we do? How are we called to respond? In light of Matthew telling us who Jesus is, fully God and fully man, Emmanuel, God with us, and in telling us what he came to do, save us from our sins through his death and resurrection, what are we to do? Let me offer up one more passage as we close in Romans 10, starting in verse 9. This is what Paul writes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And then later on he writes, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Do you want to escape sin that's inescapable in our own right? Call on the name of Jesus. Call on that beautiful, wonderful, powerful name because his name is Emmanuel, God with us. His name is Jesus, the savior of our sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news, Lord. I thank you, Father, that while I was your enemy in my sin, it was a part of the very nature of who I am, you wouldn't have that. So you sent your son, Jesus, to live a perfect life in human flesh so that we may know you and be restored and reconciled to you. I ask, Father, that there would not be a single person in this room today that walks out of these doors without calling on the name of Jesus to forgive them for their sins and their separation and their rebellion from you. Lord, would your spirit captivate our hearts and drive us to submission to the name of Jesus. I pray, Father, as we close out our time in one more song, that we would reflect on that beautiful name. I pray, Father, as we take up the offering today, Lord, that you would bless these resources and that we would be good stewards as a body of Christ and that it would be used to make the name of Jesus known and make it great. We love you, Lord. We love you because you first loved us. In your holy name I pray, amen.